The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Eat of this, suckers. <laughs> and, uh, thanks, Blaze Barrow. Um, <laughs> so, and tonight we have a special guest, comic science fiction and fantasy writer Peter B. Gillis has joined us to talk about his long and involved career in comics and writing. Welcome to the show, Peter. Great to be here. Okay, thanks for coming. So, to start things off, Peter, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Where were you originally from? I grew up in Westchester County, New York, which is just north of New York City. Mm -hmm. um, I... Um, you know, I, I had a uh, usual comics-drenched childhood. Um, I went to college at at, uh, at the University of Chicago in Chicago, mm -hmm. and batted back and forth between Chicago and New York for a number of years. I eventually got my my ABD at the University of Chicago, which was all but dissertation. So mm -hmm. I was very right. close to getting a doctorate in medieval German literature, when, but I decided I wanted to do something, well, that I just really wanted to do, and if I were going to sink into academia, I probably would never get to do it. And so I moved back to New York and uh, spent a year banging on doors at Marvel until they let me in. So when was this? 1977-78. Okay. So who was running Marvel at the time? Archie Goodwin was running Marvel. And what really happened was I had shown scripts to the executive editor, mm -hmm. Archie's executive editor, who was Jim Shooter. Mm -hmm. Jim Shooter really liked them gave them to Archie, and when I came into Archie's office, and I said, Archie, have you had a chance? And he pointed to a two-foot-tall um, pile of scripts, and he pointed to where my script was in the pile. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, he, he, he never ended up reading it. He, uh, you know, he quit. And Jim Shooter became editor, and I was in there like a shot and said, remember me? I'm the guy whose scripts you like. And he says, okay, uh, do, a, uh, do me a Captain America story. And uh, I did it overnight. He looked at it. He says, this is wrong with it. This is wrong with it. This is wrong with it. Fix it. I did that overnight. And he said, enough. Let's send it to the artist. No, I'm... I, I, I could improve it some more. You got too late. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were on deadline. Now, right, when you're writing right. these scripts, what format are they using? I mean, I remember reading somewhere that Marvel was fi famous for using their Marvel method where they just wrote outlines. Was that the case? 
Um, yeah, the um, it was when I was working. There was, um, especially if you're doing a fill-in, you did mm -hmm. a plot. Right. It was it was a detailed one, especially since you didn't know who was going to be drawing it. Mm -hmm. You said it was almost like a script, except you didn't break it down into panels. You you described actions. You described you know environments and that sort of thing. Sometimes actual dialogue, sometimes not. But really, you know, but really detailed. Then, you know, and then sent it and you got pencil pages back. And then you started putting, you know, putting word balloons. And in the early days, mm -hmm. they gave you Xeroxes and you not only wrote the script, but you drew in where the balloons would go. Um, and, and it offered you a chance to fine tune it. And I, it, it's the way I still work. Um, mm. But... You know, no nobody nobody did anything as sketchy unless they were, you know, a long-standing team, and and then a lot of it was probably verbal. But you know, you had to write a a, a plot, but a plot was not a page. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and and very often, you know, quite detailed. Um, right. So yes, I you know I I was working Marvel method and mm -hmm. I. I, I had been I had been told to I had friends on the inside at that point. So, mm -hmm. um, while I was while I was trying, a few, a few of my friends had broken in earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, Ralph Macchio, Mark Gruenwald, David Kraft, and um, you know there there was not, you know the the official Marvel tryout book was long 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 in the future. Right. Um, but we but we got the instructions as to how to set it, set it up. And so, and it was, you know, it was according to Hoyle and, uh, they were able to take my, my script and mm -hmm. send it without any reformatting or anything. Right. Like right. So. Uh, okay. Fascinating. Okay. So was there a lot of status in becoming, you know, a Mar working for Marvel at that point or was working for Marvel just something that's like, well, just some writers do, but most people don't care. Um, it depends on who you are, and that was very much what it was like to be to be a Marvel Comics writer. Mm -hmm. To to a very thin slice of the American public, mm -hmm. you were likened to a god, right? <laughs> and to the other, you know, to the to the vast, you know, the vast rest of the society, they go, "Oh, that's interesting," you know, mm -hmm. and. You know, you you get the standard follow up questions like, "Oh, so you draw the pictures?" Right. <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and uh, and do you know Stan Lee? Okay, you right. Know, you know, uh, but and and of course that's changed now. But it 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 was the case mm -hmm. that were metaphorically clawing over a mountain of other fans to get right. this job um mm. and you know there there was status it didn't come with money at mm. that point. um right. but, but you you were doing it and yeah you, so it was it was a wonderful and exciting thing to, to be and you know fan you know fandom was you know very well established and i i'd written for a couple of fanzines and so forth and you go to a convention 
I remember going to a convention, uh, like three of us and like Mary Jo Duffy, and I can't remember the third one, but we had written like a grand total of like four books between the three of us. <laughs> but we were put on a panel, just the three of us, to discuss our work in comics. So, and people came. So, and now, of course, it's it's quite different, especially if you have happened to work on Black Panther, Doctor Strange, you know, mm-hmm. um, Eternals, What If, right? You know, and um, and 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 you can mention those and have people. Wow! Oh, so. Yeah, it must be quite the feeling knowing that, you know, books that you worked on, like three major, four major books you worked on have all been turned into major Marvel properties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, it, well, it's, it's of course, there's a part, there, you know, there's a part of me that is is jazzed over it. Mm-hmm. The part of me that, that, that goes, yeah, well, some money would be nice for that. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, credit. And there was, and there's also the, this is stuff I did 35 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't just go into the cryo tube and emerge now. Right, right. So, so uh, I take it then, like right from the beginning when you decided to be a cartoonist, it was Marvel that you wanted to work for. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, I would I wouldn't have said no to DC because there because there was there there was a great deal of um, interfertilization between the companies at that point. But Marvel, I, I was I was a Marvel zombie <laughs> to to the point that you know as as a kid I would look at somebody like Joe Kubert. And my reaction would be, why isn't he working for Marvel? <laughs> He's too good to be working for DC. Uh, so, so I take it then you never submitted anything to, like, Charlton? Uh, no, no. <laughs> Charlton, Charlton tended to pay, like, $5 a page. Oh, wow. And my, my submissions were all, you know, by hand. I never went through the mail. One mm-hmm. of the uh, pieces of advice um, when... And, you know, standard convention question, uh, but, you know, how do you, you know, how do you break into Marvel Comics or DC Comics? Mm-hmm. And the, the, the answer that I got from, uh, you know, a bunch of professionals was move to New York. Mm. Yep. And that, you know, and, and, and it, it's sort of like the, the, um, the, the response to that, oh, startled you, didn't I? This shows your theory, A. And, you know, the comic book companies want someone they can turn to right away. Mm-hmm. And if they need something, you really should be there. Yeah. Um, and especially for writers... You know, if you if if you were there and presenting yourself and that sort of thing, and they needed something, they would turn to the person who was there rather than the person who had submitted a really really good script from Muscatine, Iowa, mm-hmm. which is where. Um, but well, I, I I just refer to that because that's where Max Allen Collins comes from. Okay. But, so anyway, um, and. Um, 
that was, you know, you really, you really have to be committed to it. And the technology was not there for just about anything else. This was, this was before fax machine, you know, fax machines in the hands of ordinary individuals. You know, I, I was typing on this monstrous Royal Olympia electric typewriter that weighed about 50 pounds and, uh, you know, on the, on the kitchen table in the middle of the night with mm-hmm. a, with, with, with a, uh, uh, a tray full of liquid paper bottles so that I, that I could, you know, er, you know, erase and type over it and right. uh, so forth and going in physically to hand, you know, hand the articles to people, you know, there was really no electronic communication, anything but voice. No, no. So, I, so question then, did you event? Did people or did writers always work from home back then, or did you actually later on get a like a office at Marvel, or did they have offices for Marvel or for writers uh, back at Marvel? They re- well for writers, no, they did not. By and large, they did not have. They they would have, you know, unless you got made an e- editor or assistant editors and edit, you know and editors and assistant editors mm-hmm. um, wrote stuff, but people were not hired as writers. They were hired as staff, right? Staff, right? Which is which is the way a lot of people found their way into the business. You know, my friend Tony Isabella, for example. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, uh, that's that's how he got his way in, in, and it was an extension of the presence phenomenon. Right. Um, he was there. He was mm-hmm. in always and pushing. So, okay. um, I. I, I pushed, but I was not there all the time. I was there as often as I could be. So. Right. So and there were some people who would literally just hang out at the Marvel offices every chance they got? Yeah. Um, not everyone. Well, I mean, you know, um, I was in that very, very fine fine um, slice. Mm-hmm. Use that again. I was... Just you know, I was just about ready to do it. I had a bunch of friends who you know I could go to the receptionist and say, mm-hmm. "I'm here to see Roger Slifer, or I'm here to see Dave Kraft, or I'm here to see Ralph Macchio," mm-hmm. and they would check. Or you know, Peter Gillis is here to see you, and he would you know, and he go, "Oh, sure, send him in." Once you were working there, you you did get to go in. You know, with just you did get to just walk in, mm-hmm. uh, and and yes, to to hang out as long as you didn't become too obnoxious, and and that was really the fun part about it. So right, <laughs> it, well, it must have been an interesting place with all those different personalities there. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I I will say that one of the things that I really was excited about doing was following in the footsteps of the writers mm-hmm. of the previous generation that I really admired. Don McGregor, Steve Gerber, Doug Mensch, Jim Starlin, Steve Englehart, Chris Claremont. And I got to meet all of them. Right. <laughs> and and become friends with them and, you know, talk shop. Mm-hmm. 
found out what you know. Don McGregor was especially a mentor, and you know, introduced me to all sorts of stuff that I wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have gone to as my own on my own as like a medievalist, you know, the glories of Hopalong Cassidy mm-hmm. and and Route sixty six and things like that. So right. Um, huh. So no no okay that's that's fantastic actually that sounds that sounds like you were and you were there at a time of transition I guess when they were switching from the previous generation of Marvel writers to the what would be the next generation that would take us into the eighties basically. Some of the people who were sort of the well I'm 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 anatomizing this a little too hard but you mm-hmm. know it's like Roy Thomas was on the West Coast at that point mm-hmm. there were a bunch. Well, on the West Coast that you didn't hear, but, you know, Len Wein and Marv Wolfman were there, but they didn't come in all that often, so forth. So the people immediately following Stan, mm-hmm. uh, Roy Thomas, Denny, well, Denny, Denny O'Neill, Gary Friedrich, those, you know, those people were not really in evidence, but mm-hmm. that, 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 whole, that, that whole group were there. And those of us who really admired them, came in 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 something of a group but uh, we were we were all letter hacks Ralph Macchio mm-hmm. Mark Gruenwald me Peter Sanderson who uh, you know didn't, didn't didn't come in in this in the same way that we did uh, and uh, there are there are pictures of us uh, you know Exhibiting youthful hijinks, like just <laughs> we got the business. And Dean Mullaney was one of our group. Um, you know, later, you know, he he was involved in publishing uh, McGregor's Saber. Uh, yep, and uh, and then Eclipse Comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bruning was another of our friends who became art director at uh, of of DC. So. Um, so yeah, it, 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 we, we were, we were kind of a wave. Right. Yeah. It sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. Cause that, that would have been, um, uh, for a lot of, I think people listening, uh, they might not have known cause that would have been, if I remember correctly, the early to mid seventies were kind of, uh, like a contraction for the comic industry. And when you got to the late seventies going into the eighties, it was marvelous, especially, uh, they they seem to expand. They seem there was a uh, kind of a change in tone with a lot of their books that they really it seemed like they were focusing more on continuity and appealing to the long term fan as opposed to the previous stuff where it was, the idea was that you only read for a couple of years and then you moved on and they tailor for new audience. Did you find that there was kind of a um, like a shift in the editorial mentality between say the seventies going into the eighties? Um, it's not it, 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 it's not as severe as that, but when I was hanging out either before or during my entrance into Marvel, people like John Verporten and Marv Wolfman and a few other people would be, you know, standing in the hallway, scowling and shaking their heads at the sales figures, the return figures for the books. And and there you know there was there was the feeling that the um, you know that Marvel that comic books might not be around in 
a few years. It's because newsstands were vanishing. Supermarkets were not picking up. Um, the, distri the, the, the distribution was corrupt. You know, things were things were getting sixty and seventy and, and eighty percent returns. Oh wow! Almost certainly that they never left. You know the pallets in in in, in the warehouse. And uh, but what saved more, you know, what what saved comics in general was the rise of the of the comic book store. Right. Um, and with that becoming a greater, you know, a, a you know, pretty soon principal part of the distribution, catering to the things fans liked became more of a factor. Oh, okay. So. Um, there, there was, there, there were still newsstand sales, and Marvel, Marvel and DC both continued to, try, you know, to try to reach the general public. I mean, Marvel was publishing westerns, you know, they didn't sell well, and they were all reprints, but they saw, you know, but they sold enough to keep going, and they were, you know, seeing if they could enhance that. So periodically, they would do one new western, you know. <laughs> Similarly, DC did their war books. Were not fan favorites, even even with the spectacular art that they had. Um, but they they were still trying to garner that market, you know, perceived as an older market. When when some historians talk about, oh, they just focused on superheroes. Mar you know, when when Harvey Comics went under, Marvel did Star Comics. Yeah, mm -hmm. and and hired you know and hired you know Sid Jacobson to edit them. Warren Kremer. Now Warren Kremer was the Harvey style. Yeah. Uh, and but for the first time in forty years, you got to hear that you got to see the guy's credit. Yeah. And all you know they they did planetary and you know things like that. And it's it's like Warren Kramer, he's the guy who you know who who defined the Richie Rich cast you know cast for the friendly ghost style. Yeah, yep, you know, and they they tried their damnedest to make it work. Um, ultimately, it did. I mean, it it affected me when I approached Marvel or Marvel approached me about Strike Force Moratory. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I viewed it as an experimental book. But if I was going to do it at Marvel, I wanted newsstand sales. Um. I, you know, I didn't want it to be a um, a an epic book which only got sold to the comic book stores. Yeah. Now, I mean, I first said because the fans they hate this book, you know. Um, but um, but it was also I wanted to get out to people who um, who weren't the true believers on this mm -hmm. and um, and and get some newsstand sales. The transition was inevitable, and but that was during the eighties. Yeah. Um, well, actually, let's so let's go back a tiny bit. So when you first started at Marvel, you were you you apparently did a Captain America story at first, and then what happened? Well, the, the Captain 
America story, because the, the Captain America series was in disarray, mm-hmm. uh, went to press really quickly. It was uh, Captain America 224, and it was me and Mike Zeck. And uh, it was Mike mm-hmm. Zeck's Captain America. So, you know, um, and, uh, and, and then I just, I did some Marvel 2-in-1s. One which is which was fun, but kind of forgettable thing in Captain Marvel with Alan Kupperberg, a wonderful, wonderful guy and an underrated artist, mm-hmm. and another one with this promising young guy named Frank Miller, um, <laughs> and you know, um, you know, fill in, you know, fill ins here. I did, I did some more Captain Americas, mm-hmm. and um, and you know, very, you know, various other things. No series in the offing. Right. Uh, yet. I got offered, Jim Salakrup offered me a job as his assistant, but I was also really tired of New York. And mm-hmm. I, 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 was, I was feeling that um, at that point I was going, I've done this. <laughs> I've broken into Marvel and I've written some stories. And if I continue to write villains, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But finish my doctorate. So I moved back to, uh, to Chicago, continued to work on the, you know, little bits of this and that. And of course, mm-hmm. not getting anywhere with being on, you know, being on a regular book, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, quite a bit. Um, and you know, Roger Stern liked my work. I co-wrote a couple of issues of the Hulk with him. Roger Stern, looked at me and said, write me a Western. And I wrote, you know, without the word kid in it, please. <laughs> and so I did Caleb Hammer, which came out in Marvel premiere. Um, right. So, and uh, really, really the changeover happened um, as, I, as I was working on my dissertation. You know, it was uh, first comics started up. And I'd known Mike Gold from the Chicago Comic Con. Both he and I had been. He was an organizer. Mm-hmm. And we did every single, you know, Comic Con since its founding and so forth. And he says, "We're starting a new comic book company. And do you want to write our flagship book?" And you know, it was working with Frank Brunner. And it didn't matter that you know, I mean, it was an adaptation. So it was basically Frank. We we were both working from the from the plot from the plays, and uh, I was just really doing the dialogue. But Marvel then said, "What are you working for these guys for?" Right. In a series. So it wasn't that quick, but you know, and, and but I started getting more work, and also when Ralph Macchio stopped being an assistant editor. Mm-hmm. And um, started becoming, you know, became a became an editor in his own right. That's when I started to do the Micronauts. Right. So, and uh, when Carl Potts came along, who who liked me, you know, and felt that I was just enough uh, off center to suit him, you know, <laughs> you know, um, I got doing the Defenders, and mm-hmm. and. And when Roger Stern, Roger came to me and said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm running out of ideas for Dr. Strange. You know, it's like, you want to write the book? And he knew that, you know, this, 
Doctor Strange was my favorite character growing okay. up. Okay. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, would I, oh, geez, thank you. Now, this was not the way things were done. Mm-hmm. Um, one writer, you know, it used to happen that one writer would just hand the book over to another writer and vice versa. But, but you know, Roger was also an editor, but not on Doctor Strange. <laughs> so he said, you know, he says, well, great, you know. And I said, you know, you're smiling too much. <laughs> what, you know, what catch? And he says, your first issue is the Beyonder crossover for Secret Wars 2. Yeah. Oh. Like, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> which was actually not that hard to do, but, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because everybody was having nightmares, you know, nightmare experiences with that, you know, being sent back. No, you get this wrong, etc., etc., etc. But, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I really liked it, and yeah, and I got to work with Mark Badger, so you know, mm-hmm. it, it turned out to be a good, good experience, and uh, I kept pushing, you know. You know, I was kind of on fire, and I was nowhere near my capacity. So, mm-hmm. what do you got? Had anything for me? Well, how many comics were you writing at the same time? It was close to like a book a week. Uh, huh. You know, um, especially when you included, uh, you know, included the work for first. Right. Uh, yeah. And the other stuff, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, and I was having a good time. And, I, uh, I bet you were. Uh, I mean, I wasn't that ecstatic that, you know, that uh, nobody was offering me, you know, the Avengers or Thor <laughs> or, or the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. But I'm going, no, oh, this is pretty good. And I have Doctor Strange, you know. Right. If, if somebody had came come to me as as you know, as a child, you know, Blue Fairy with a, with a wand saying, "You can write one and only one Marvel Comics character. What would it be?" And I would go Doctor Strange. So, um, wow, that that's interesting. So, what what about Doctor Strange appeals to you so much? I th- I think the I, I I think the limited the limitless possibilities of it. You know. Jack Kirby was a spiritual father to me, mm-hmm. but not because of his fights. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he, he he did them better than anybody else, and all that. But it was you know it was his visionary you know his, his you know visions of Asgard, visions of science fiction universes, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, and going places that nobody had ever seen before. Nobody ever imagined, not even in the science fiction magazines. Steve Ditko, same thing. Mm. Quite, quite literally, you know. I, I looked at this. I looked at Steve Ditko's, you know, you know, Doctor Strange universes, and just said, I, you know, I want, I, I want to, I want to participate in that. Mm-hmm. And you know, Strange's stories were different. Strange, you know, Strange was dealing with, you know, concepts and menaces that 
um, were were you know of a different uh, of a different level than everybody else at Marvel, even Thor, even the Fantastic Four, mm-hmm. and and he was and he was the he was the epitome of cool, <laughs> you know, he, you know he he didn't he didn't have, he didn't wear shoes. <laughs> You know, he had a he had he had a flowing blouse and a cape, mm-hmm. and um and a, and a mustache, right? You know? Um and 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 you know you know and could open doors in space with a gesture, and it, it you know it really was his you know his stories and that that he was at home in this, you know I love Thor for the same reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's kind of I I can I can really kind of see that um the 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 Micronauts that Marvel put out is one of my all time favorite comics and for for anybody listening not familiar the original series was kind of this like science fiction action really dark universe and when you took over with uh, the 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 new voyages it was it was referred to. I can see a lot of what you're saying in it because you took these the, the story, this essentially action story. And this is something I've noticed you, you do a lot, and I'm wondering if it's intentional. And you changed the scope of it to be absolutely cosmic. Like the stories were all about, especially the Micronauts, it was about personal identity and belonging in the universe. But you always took it down to the character level. And that was the one thing that I noticed um, very different about the Micronauts you did, about a lot of your stuff, that no matter how big the scope or the story is, you tend to make it very personal for the characters. I'm wondering, is that intentional or is that just something that you've picked up over the years, do you think? Uh, it's, it's, to me, that's the way you do it. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's also the way that Steve Gerber did it, the way that Don McGregor did it, and especially Doug Mitch. Mm-hmm. Um, it, um, they they didn't just you know, exp, you know explode you know and yeah. uh, and um, and it affected them and how do you confront this sort of thing and you know um, look uh, I loved Bill Mantlo's Micronauts mm-hmm. um, and you know it, it was phenomenally inventive but it, but his model was Flash Gordon uh, yeah oh. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I mean, you know, and and um, you know, and that's not a bad model to use, <laughs> you know. And you know, you had Ming the Merciless, and you had, you know, and and you had the the outside, you know, the outsider coming in to save the microverse. So you know, he'd been gone for a thousand years, and and all of that. And you know, a Croyer is like Prince Baron, you know, um, there, you know. Hmm. And, and marionette is Dale Art. So there's, you know, and, and of course you have two robots because <laughs> this was the Star Wars era. You know? Right. Um, and when I got it, I said, you know, is there any way that I can do a science fiction comic without doing war in space? Mm. And I thought about it a bunch. And you know, I came up with it, and one of the key things was was a visual, which was and and you know it it did you know it did kind of bother me that that the that the microverse was you know a 
bunch of planets with dowels between them. <laughs> right. And it's, 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 it's like, you know, that, that kind of offends my, uh, you know, my, you know, every, every bit of science that I'd ever read. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but I, I, all of a sudden I said, what does the microverse look like? And you, and, and we have them go away far enough to see, and instead of like a Milky Way, they see a DNA spiral. Okay. No, and, and, and that when I go, bam, you know, that's it. And who made it? Um, and then, you know, and then learning, you know, and, and then working to make this exciting because, of course, you could just go, here's this, you know, here's this amazing thing. Uh, and, and you stand there with your mouth open for 20 issues. You know, it's like, no, can't do that. Um, so, um, so I worked on it. And of course, um, I worked, uh, I, I worked with Kelly Jones, who, you know, when he was about like, like 15, <laughs> when I, when I met him at the San Diego convention, you know, his, his voice was still high and I, you know, he looked like 12. <laughs> and my first reaction was because I had worked with Butch Geis and I'm going, do I get to work with Butch Geis? He go, well, no, no, here, this guy. You go, you're giving me the inker? He <laughs> <laughs> goes, and, and Ralph, who knows what he's doing? Say, trust me on this one. And, I, you know, and, and Kelly um, would just act, you know, just anything I threw at him, he would do. Yeah. And, uh, we just kept going and, uh, and managed to do it. Not, you know, and not because we did, you know, we were pacifists or anything like that, but because there was more, you know, you know, if you're going to be doing a science fiction strip, there's more exciting stuff than beating each other up. So. Yeah. Actually, can I break in for a second? So what, uh, science fiction or fantasy books when you were young were your inspiration? Like, what was the thing that helped inspire you into being the writer you became? Well, um, I read I read tons of stuff, but I I, I gravitated to the more out there stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, A.E. Van Vogt. As above Clark and Heinlein, A.E. Van Vogt and Philip K. Dick Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the the, the, you know, the the people who just, you know, took the top of your head and twisted it off. Olaf Stapleton. Right. Uh, people like that. And very often the people who wrote strangely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, in fantasy, well, one guy, you know, I, or actually two or three. But, you know, I mean, Tolkien, you know miles above everybody else but uh, mm-hmm. you know I and and those people who you know sort of like remade the universe in front of you mm-hmm. were, were the things that I really you know that I really loved that pull, that really pulled my imagination along um, okay yeah. because I noticed that if there's one theme that tends to run, at least with your first, the comics you did for first and even the stuff you did for DC and a lot of your Marvel it's basically science fiction. Like you really do come across as a science fiction writer who 
also writes fantasy and also does some superhero stuff. But mostly looking at your at what you wrote back in the time, it seems like you were mostly a science fiction writer. Yep. Um, I was pushing for mm-hmm. more. I was, you know, as, as a fan, I was, extru- excuse me, I was extraordinarily happy to see Conan the Barbarian. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much because I thought we needed a big guy with a bloody sword, but because of Robert E. Howard's vision of, you know, the, the abyss and the, and, the, and, and the Hyborian age and the dim past and, uh, and all of that. But I was saying we should, you know, it, it, it's like, and we should do more fantasy. Mm-hmm. Now, people, were, you know, we were doing science fiction because science fiction and superheroes work together really pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was saying I wanted, uh, you know, I, I, I would love to do this. Um, mm-hmm. And now one of, you know, one of my uh, favorite um you know, favorite properties, favorite things that I did was the Black Flame. Oh yeah. Uh, now that that that's fantasy. That's fantasy with a capital T. That's true. That's <laughs> yeah. true. Yes, it is. Yes. And um, and it's you know it started out with my friend Bruce Patterson who inked the first few issues, and we you know and he was produ- you know production manager at uh, under Joe Staten at first so and he says you know what we should have we should have an hp lovecraft series <laughs> mm-hmm. oh bruce there's a problem with an hp lovecraft series it's that the hero every issue would have to get you know go you know and i was gravitating toward it and but i knew what he meant <laughs> and you know, I was I was really thinking, and I was very attracted to the very early H.P. Lovecraft before he, you know, just got into horror and um, was do was doing you know more dark fantasy, and mm-hmm. um, and that was where you know, and and from there, you know, that that was where I developed the idea of the Boogeyman and uh, the the you know the land of dream and the land of miracle and all of that. And uh, and I would have loved to do a Tolkienian fantasy, um, but nobody really was interested, you know. And until you know, um, the closest came was you know my friend, you know, uh, you know Marvel Special Projects and Warriors of the Shadow Realm, right. um, Third World, and uh, you know. It you know it was a big deal and it showed that you know it showed the depth of uh, John Buscema's abilities and of Doug Mention's abilities. So yeah, but you know it, it, it's still there's still not that much out there because you know in in many ways it doesn't really lend itself you know to comic books. Um, you know. Not you know, not as well as you know, pulp adventure or anything like that. So, yeah, um, it it can work, and I I, I you know I, I can show you how it can work, but uh, it, it's still um, you know it, it was still a you know a phenomenal influence of mine, and you know, but uh, it wasn't for lack of trying. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I can see it because around that time, um, other they they Marvel did Conan. Uh, they did a bunch of ones that they were trying to make Conan. And you mentioned because Weird World was another one that I really liked, but you can kind of see Marvel never knew what to do with it because they kept kind of moving it around and sort of restarting the story every so often. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I, I mean, well, you know, there's one the one issue of uh, of you know, uh, of, of it was Marvel premiere, I think. And it was, you know, Doug writing, and it was Mike Plug drawing and Alex Nino inking, and it was oh. one of the beautiful things ever. Yeah. You know, uh, but, and, you know, and I, I'm saying, I, you know, I would buy this series forever, you know. <laughs> but, and I don't know, you know, I don't know really why, you know, the, uh, the you know, the, the tendency never never came to to the major guys. By the '90s, when I had left, well, you know, it's it's, it's like uh, people were adapting science fiction, you know, epic fantasy left and right. Now, Lord of the Rings was off limits. You know, there, you know, and, and I'm saying, you know, like where are the Game of Thrones books, and somebody said, well, they exist. <laughs> they do. I've never seen one. Mm. Yeah. Well, of the problem, <laughs> you know, it was done by a small company. Uh, somebody, somebody did Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern, mm-hmm. you know, and then I was gone. But which is, you know, halfway between fantasy and science fiction. Right. Yeah. It's kind of hard to do something. Well, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings is is one grand narrative. Mm-hmm. And you chop it up into graphic novels. But you know, chopping it up into an ordinary comic book, you know, you, you you get entire issues of them, you know, like cooking breakfast, mm. you know, <laughs> or, or slogging through, you know, or slogging through marshes, or sitting, you know, or, or, or sitting at a conference table. That's that, and and that's kind of the nature of the thing. It's still, you know, I still, you know, I still want to do it. I, I and. and with your permission, I will jump ahead a little. Um, sure, sure, go ahead. Because because I just I, I just put it up on Facebook like this year, mm-hmm. uh, a couple months ago, that one of my fantasies, mm-hmm. too, if somebody gave me a publishing company, would be to do a set of graphic novels of the um, of the classic fantasy novels. Um, huh. You know. Um, like Lynn Carter's uh, old fantasy, mm-hmm. like E.R. Edison, Zimmy Amvia books, William Morris, Lord Dunsany, Arthur Mackin, um, you know, um, James Branch Cabell, um, you know, having the advantage, having the advantage on just about all of them that they're in public domain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, yeah, um, true. High, high fantasy, and, you know, done by done by top artists who would do, give, do the visuals justice and, uh, you know, and put them out. Now, I have no idea whether that would be a successor, but um, I would buy them, you know, and I, I think other people would because they, they are magnificent stories. Right, yeah. But, um, and, and 
have all the elements that people, you know, that, that people who read comics would love to see. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that would make money, well, I'd be the last person to actually, uh, you know, be, you know, come come to and say, uh, you know, you know, uh, give financial advice to other people. So. <laughs> well, there there would be a way to test it out. I mean, we do have systems like. Um, uh, Patreon and oh my god, Kickstarter. Um, we've got things like you know, sites like Kickstarter where you could actually, if you could get an artist to do maybe just a few pages or some promo art, and yeah. you just stick it up there on as a Kickstarter, and you never know what could happen. Right. Well, you know, my 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 problem with that these days is look, writers mm-hmm. can do all sorts of stuff, and you know just churn out a vast amount of stuff in the time that the artist is getting his boots on. Right. Yes. And, and um, now, so, but let's 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 get to that a little bit later. Yeah. Let's get back to. Okay. So so let's see. Actually, let's talk about Strike Force Morituri because that's one of the stories you're most famous for. So, where did the idea for that one come from? Um. Well, it was you know. It was kind of an emotional reaction. I, 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 I would say like the death of Supergirl in Crisis on Infinite Earth. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Well, you know, because I'm going, she wouldn't have died if her movie hadn't stunk. Oh, <laughs> oh. true, true. Yes. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it's like, and she'll come back. Yeah. And, you know, the, and, you know, the, the other and, and perhaps more serious one is uh, Chris Claremont and Phoenix. Mm-hmm. That, well, you know, by now, pretty much everybody knows the story that yes. you know, Chris was forced to kill her. Um, you know, I, I, I know the story. I worked at the fan, you know, I, I was working with the fanzine people who published the you know the the uh, Burns pages for the issue number one thirty eight that never uh, never uh, never was done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but wait a sec, uh, for our audience that doesn't know the story, can you tell it? So why was he forced to kill her? Uh, Jim Shooter said, "Well, you know, it was Dark Phoenix. She, right? You know, had more power than just about anybody else in the universe, mm-hmm. and it was her dark." You know, she she was just you know she she was she turned she turned okay and that mm-hmm. sort of thing and expressed her love for Scott, but she she just became too dangerous, mm-hmm. uh, far too dangerous. And um, Chris's original um, you know the thing was that the Shi'ar just said, you know, no, we 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 are going to shut her down. Mm-hmm. You know, not kill her, but you know depower her completely right and uh you know and in many ways that's worse than death mm-hmm. yeah. um you know it, it's sort of like with all that power and suddenly you're in a box and you right see anything you can't hear anything you can't do anything but uh, but that was what was going going to happen and she you know all of her mutant powers were completely gone and you know, and there was a grief involved in that. Mm-hmm. You know, and Chris was re- 
ready to write that story. But Jim Shooter came along and said, no, she, she killed a pet, an entire planet. Yeah. yeah. You know? It'd be asparagus people. But she has to die. And, uh, you know, you know, and, you know, Chris, you know, Chris may have, you know, Chris was, had no real world, you know, hold on the X-Men. Mm-hmm. Right. He, he, you know, and so he did it. And he rose to the occasion and did some of the best writing he ever did in his life. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the one of the things he told to me mm-hmm. here at that point, you know, and and you know, um, and you you can see little things that when you know, Dave Cockrum took over the book, they they lift sort of like little little clues to how he was going to bring her back. Mm-hmm. And then Jean Day died. Right. You know? right. Um, and it threw, well, I mean, you know, it threw, it threw me into, you know, into despair. I mean, I've been working with him. I, you know, he was working on uh, the first Warp special. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was what was on his drawing board when he collapsed. Um, and, you know, he was a friend. I mean, you know, Doug, mm-hmm. you know you know, uh, we were all that way, and 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 Chris, you know, said people die, mm-hmm. you know, and it's and and it's unjust and all that, and I can't, you know, I, you know, and, it, and it, it's like trying to undo that is wrong, mm-hmm. like, right? You no, know, and you know, and then they brought her back. Yeah, of course, a, a few a few times actually. <laughs> Yeah, but you no, know, I mean, but when they brought her back, that was when, as you know, and and you know, look, they were, you know, these guys were friends of mine too. But mm-hmm. when they X Factor back, that was the end of my end of my relationship as a reader with the X Men. Hmm. So, hmm. You know, you know, it, it's just, and that was just because, you know. It's it's not all it, it, it you know it, it's sort of like no you can do that with anybody can't you and do right you know? and you know and and death of super you know and from then on it's death of Superman he'll be back you know yep and and and, and every you know and Supergirl came back um, mm-hmm. and and you know and of course villains always come back yep. Uh, and and that sort of thing, but nobody you know, and nobody ever dies. Yep. Yeah. And, and what I what I realized about this was, you know, we can't do stories about death in comics and in superhero comics anymore. And we certainly can't do stories about sex. Mm-hmm. So what else is there? Professional thing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, it, it you know you know the the you know, the two major sources of emotional power, you know, just, you can't do them. And it, it wasn't decreed that you, well, decreed that you can't do stuff about sex. But, mm-hmm. um, well, you know, um, it, it's it's also very difficult to, uh, you know, get people married, you know, in comics. <laughs> you know, it took Stan to, you know, marry Peter and Mary Jane. Right. <laughs> um, That's true. It, it's it's it is sort of like you know and and uh you know 
but they broke that marriage up anyway. And it took, you know, it, it took Mephisto to do it, but they did it. <laughs> uh, but, but it, you know, uh, and so there was all this shying away. And I realized that if I wanted to do a story about death and, you know, and that meant real heroism, people in real, you know, in real trouble, in real danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that sort of thing. I had to write it into the premise of the book. Mm-hmm. No, and saying uh, that, no, uh, you know, you, you get superpowers and you die it within a year. Yeah. You know, no exceptions. You know, uh, no cure. Mm-hmm. No nothing. And, you know, and, and it's sort of like, um, I was going to do that as an alternative book because I didn't, you know, think that uh, that Marvel would ever touch it. Mm-hmm. I had, I had, I had two portfolios. I had, you know, the stuff that I wanted to do for Marvel and the stuff that I wanted to do for the indies. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Carl Potts one day says, uh, says, let me look at your indie, look, look at your indie portfolio. And he looked through it, and he goes, this one. And it was Strikeforce. Mm-hmm. A couple of other small publishers really, really wanted to do this. But, you know, I, I go, yeah, but are you going to pay me? <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, you got to have the book out in color. Mm-hmm. Uh, color covers. <laughs> yep. Anyway, but, you know, and but I would have probably ended up doing it anyway, but you know, Carl said, you, you know, this one, let's do it. You want to work with Brent Anderson? And I go, holy shit, would I, you know, yep. and it, you know, and, uh, he was the perfect artist for the book better than just about anybody else because he, you know, he did real facial expressions. He did real, subtlety. Yeah. He, you know, he did real people. And, uh, and that was really essential. So, so, uh, I wanted to, you know, and, and of course I set myself up as to do the thing of, I have this ghastly premise, mm-hmm. really awful premise, and I'm going to make you like the book, <laughs> you know, and I think I succeeded, but you know, it was, it was not without a, a lot of, you know, a lot of care to say, well, you know, look, it's, it would be very easy to do a book about superheroes who, who die if you were dark and cynical and then you just go yeah okay you know what an ugly book mm-hmm. uh, but I said well you know but that's not the point it's not to debunk anything mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's to have this stuff as real heroism passion you know you know and, and Carl just said let's do it so so I did it's it's interesting. It's it's always kind of bugged me because Strike Force Moratoria again. This is an, another one that I, I really enjoyed. The time it comes out, somebody else did kind of that similar, darker, um, more cynical version of the 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 superhero idea, and that was the Watchmen. Yeah, that that was that was kind of your because Moratoria was the idea that I, I can I can see what you're getting at with with the heroism because again it was that idea of these doomed characters and you as the clock ticked down you're basically watching all of them having to 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 rebuild their nerve 
essentially after every fight because they can feel the Reaper coming. And then you had that similar kind of deconstruction with 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 the Watchmen, except yeah. it went the other way, that it was showing how if somebody wanted to be a superhero in real life, they would have to have severe mental problems and probably be kind of an asshole about it, too. I don't know. What, you know I'm just not a cynic. <laughs> I mean, I'm forced, you know, I, I live in the real world, so I'm forced to be one, but I'm, I'm basically not one. And, and one of the things I was tending to do was to say, okay, here's a really horrible premise, and watch me do a, char- a charming book out of it. Because I'm going, well, you know, what's, you know, it's a horrible premise. What's the point of doing a horrible book? And um, the thing about Strike Force War Tree that appealed to me as a writer beyond that is this is such an easy book to do wrong. Yeah. Mm. You know, this, this is, you know, this, this is, you know, this, you know, is really easy to fail at doing, which said, no, I have to keep thinking about this. I have to keep working at this. And I, you know, I can't, I, I, I can't take the easy way on this. So, but, but, you know, it, it's like, now I, I basically, well, well, when you consider the black flame, it was sort of like, I, I, am not a horror writer, mm-hmm. at which point Kelly Jones bursts, bursts into laughter. But, 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 but again, you know, the, the Watchmen was, you know, was, was it's, you know, its own thing. I, you know, I didn't set strike force in today, you know, in today's world. So, mm-hmm. And actually, I had a world which had gotten better a fair amount, and then the aliens show up. Yeah. So, um, and one of the, you know, one of the things that people may notice, and one of the things that I made no bones about, is that I'm not doing, I'm not going to do the bad government story. Hmm. You know, the, you know, this is, you know, a desperate government doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but not, you know, and, and yes, it's, you know, it's doing doing terrible things to these people who were volunteering and wanted this or thought they did. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, and, and it's like, I you know, I did the trial of Strike Force Moratory, which, tur- you know, which did not turn out in the typical way of them being condemned or anything. It's just sort of like, look, you've got to, you know, we understand, you know, but mm-hmm. hey, well, you, 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 you've got to obey us a little more often. <laughs> right. But, um, but, you know, and, and, you know, because that story had been done. And of course, you know, continue, you know, continues to be done, you know, and Alan Moore was doing a dystopian story, you know, set in the world as it is. And yeah, it's, um, it's, it's dark, but it's, it's easy to do. It's easy to do dark. It's, you know, um, it's, you know, it's easy to write assholes. It's, you know, uh, it's, it's easy to write, you know, cynical stuff. That, that's, that's, that's been one of my, uh, operating principles for a very long time. Dark is easy. 
Yeah, well, and, and it's it's the idea too that, uh, like I said about the Micronauts, uh, you did it in uh, Moratori. You did it when you took over the Eternals and even the the Black Flame. You tend to write the stories, no matter how big the story. It's always the lives of the characters that you focus in on, and it gives it that that personal thing. Because even something like the Black Flame, a lot of the stories, uh, at least the ones I, can, I, I I remember reading they were very personal for the people that he was trying to help. And, and again, I, I think that, I think that for something like, like especially Moraturi writing like that gives you that edge because you can have the characters as, as real people. And it's for the audience, they're easy to like, even the arseholes in the team were, were likable because like you knew these people and then it really makes it tragic because it feels like something bad happening to a character rather than to an archetype. Yeah. I look, you know, to, to put it on his head, it's sort of like, yeah, I'm working very hard to make you like these characters and, you know, see them as human beings and all of that. And then makes them explode. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Um, but you know, but you know, and and yeah, it's perfectly legitimate to say you know, you're one sick puppy, aren't you? <laughs> right. But again, you know, one of the one of the things Brent asked me when we were talking, you know, when we were discussing uh, the strip, which we you know, which we did a lot, he uh, goes, "Is there life after death in the Strike Force Mortar universe?" And my answer is I don't know. Hmm. Or that I know whether there's there's life after death in this one. And that's the point. Right. Oh, that's that's kind of, that's kind of creepy because you you did a story with uh, where the one character dies and she meets up with somebody from from like the earlier issues and they actually discuss that as she's walking into like uh, walking into basically a blank abyss. And yeah. and I wonder was that a dream sequence or was that real or that's going to bug me now? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> she meets she meets she meets somebody who is like her spirit guide. Mm-hmm. In the next to the last issue, issue 19, because I remember it. And um, she's you know she's either going into you know a blank abyss or beautiful blinding brilliant light. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, could be either. Now, oh, wow. you know, and one of the other things, I mean, you know, in do, you know, in doing the story, one of the, you know, again, one of the things of working against type, I had adept, young black woman who's a fundamentalist Christian. Mm-hmm. Yes. And not evil, you know. That's true. And, you know, just because I'm tired of that crap, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and, um, and, and of course, you know, they, in the fundamentalist community, people pick, picked up on that and going, oh, my God, you know, he must be. No, I'm not, you know, but I'm just mm-hmm. tired of that, you know, tired of, of that thing. But her, you know, she was absolutely unafraid to die, mm-hmm. you know? Um because she knows she's going to heaven. Right. You know, um, and one of the things that does bother her is she's not sure that her, you know, her, her, you know, her teammates are. Right. Yeah. But, 
you know, it's it. You know, there's there's not enough time or opportunity to like try to convert them. You know, yeah, they've got an alien invasion to, to you know to, to stop. Mm-hmm. And and when she finally does die, we do this panel because you know there there's you know what we have as her manifestation of her power is you know is a you know ghostly outline of herself mm-hmm. uh, you know, ghostly outline re- you know reaching out and you know and the void so you know there's something that might be a, an answering hand but might just be darkness mm-hmm. ah. and and you know look and and you know i i was very specific about what I wanted to see, and you know, and Brett understood completely and did precisely what we did. You know, it's uh, you know, is you know, is she answering? Is there a God who you know who who's uh, who, who's grasp burns or she returns? You know, could be one, could be the other. Right. Um, so anyway, yeah, and. and 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 so you know so there is there you know there is hope there is you know there you know and um, and I I'm not going to steer at hope it's just that we die you know mm-hmm. how do you deal with that how you know how do you forge relationships and uh, you know when when you are going to die and all that's pretty fundamental stuff right and, uh, so you know I I'm I'm very proud of that series. I really got to do what I wanted to do, you know, for that, you know, for that period. Now, how did you feel about the uh, the stuff they did later on, like the the last part of the series or the Electric Undertow sequel they did? I have not read them. Okay, okay. Because did you plan? Did you plan beyond the stuff you wrote, or? Um, yeah, we you know we we had plans for you know for uh, you know for quite a long time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we had figured out by issue, by, by about issue 12 uh, that we, you know, that, well, you know, Brent wanted to leave the book. Mm-hmm. He was disgusted that we were getting no publicity on it. Yeah. He was disgusted at the, you know, at, at the production errors and stuff like that. And, you know, and it's it's just like, yeah, and, and, you know, we didn't quite exist for the rest of Marvel. And, and you know, but I said... Stick with me, issue twenty. You know that you know we will have told the story. I, I don't want to leave in the middle of the story. And as of issue twenty, everyone who is in issue one will be gone. Every moratorium will be. Yeah, he, he agreed to that. So um, hmm. how and and you know so and and of course you know issue twenty we just left. You know you can stop reading this book now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you know, yeah, it's pretty clear. Yeah. But but it is it, like with you know with Aline, um Blackthorn, who really mm-hmm. you know turns out to be basically the you know, the, the thread for this for the for for the whole series. Right. Um, you know, it's you know, it it's still you know, hope and passion and um all of that, but you know, her story is she. You know, she felt her life was worthless, 
and you know nobody cared whether she lived or died, and she practically didn't either, and so forth. And she could you know she could do something and do good for humanity, and so you know um, why don't we do it? Yeah. And then she you know then she gains powers and gains friends and you know and teammates, and life becomes sweet to her. Mm-hmm. That's you know that's the terrible part about it. I mean, why she went in there? Because life was you know life was ashes in her mouth, and as soon as she throws it away, all of a sudden it becomes it, you know it becomes worth living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she turns from you know uh, you know a a you know slightly ugly ducking duckling. I mean you know not unattractive, but big nose and you know. All of that to, you know, winning the heart of, you know, the hearts drop movie star. You know? Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, and, you know, I, I, I worked with, you know, I, I had all of these stories in my head that I wanted to do, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, and it was great. Well, you know, Carl. The, the one thing that he made us do, which was sort of like Jim Shooter, you know, it's like everybody has to call each other by name, the super the superhero <laughs> name, powers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, there's you know that's that's the one thing that I look on those issues and go, well, we tried to be really inventive about that, but, <laughs> you know, but but it's like, yeah, okay. Everybody, everybody's, everybody's calling themselves each other by their code names, and uh, and and they're all doing things with their powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm sitting there going, you know, Wolfman and Perez don't, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's very true. Hmm. Anyway, uh, actually, here's a odd question about Strike Force Mercury. So. Going through it because I recent I recently reread it. I read it many years ago, but I re- was recently rereading it. And there's a backup story about you and the artist trying to come up with a story for the book. Yep. And during that story, there's you look over and there's a the, you, the cartoon you looks over on. There's this giant poster on the wall that says Claremont says, "Why can't it be a woman?" Yes. Was Claremont really that? Uh, how can I put this? Feminist, you know, towards you know, in his philosophy of Marvel comics. Yeah, no, he, uh, no, he was, he was definitely a champion, a champion of the thing. Right. And, uh, I, I mean, look, he, he, he was not, you know, he was still a freelancer. He wasn't dictating to anybody, but he goes mm-hmm. about it. You know, it's like, you know, you're creating a new character. Mm-hmm. The reason it can't be a woman. You know, just sure. ask yourself that question. You, right. You know, maybe, yes, there are good reasons, but, you know, it's it's like you know and and it, it, you know it's really good because yeah you know you may be you know reason you know reasonably enlightened about these things but you know you know your instincts are when you think of a new character the character is a guy mm-hmm. yes especially and, uh, at that time yeah yeah you know we thought it was funny too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was also funny. It was, it was. Oh no, that backup bit was actually was really funny. I enjoyed that. Were, were the darts real? <laughs> uh, 
they 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 were you know they they were spirit guards. <laughs> okay. Sorry, audience. You'll have to go and read read Strike Force Mercury to find out what we're talking about. Um, actually, so we should go on. We should get moving on because I don't want to keep you too late of that. So another book I want to ask you about is Shatter. What's the story behind that? The one you did for first. Okay. That was pretty simple. I was living in the Lakewood neighborhood of Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, not too far from the lake, but uh, you know, um, still, still reasonably close. And it was, it, it was a very cool place. A couple, a couple of really, really cool bars. Now, you know, I, my my drinking days ended in my undergraduate years, but but I would go to this bar because it was very cool, and you know, it's like. Uh, I walked in, and you know there was no jukebox. There was there was a, there was a uh, uh, there was a turntable in the back and playing the Pretenders. And I said, "Oh, okay, this looks good." And uh, and I made a number of friendships. And one of the other people living in the air, you know, in that neighborhood, was Mike Science. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how you pronounce it, Science. Um, <laughs> But, uh, and, and we, you know, and we got together and we started, and we just went, we should do something together. And I said, yeah, let's, you know, and, you know, it, it stayed at sort of that level. We didn't start, you know, throwing back and forth ideas. Uh, we, we both had plenty of them, but, you know, it was sort of like, you know, we should, and, and then the Macintosh came out. Mm-hmm. And, the you know the the guy Mike was staying with got one, and we you know and and we played with it, and I said, this is it, we do you know we're you know and, and you know we're going to do our comics project on the Macintosh, hmm. and so um, so we started putting you know putting it together and. Uh, and uh, you know he did a number a number of samples to show that you could do, you know, professional level work on it. I mean he was phenomenal, um, and and so forth samples to say this is what it's going to look like. And yes, it was on ordinary computer paper with the sprocket holes on the sides, <laughs> and uh, and it was one up, you know, um, and you know it, it had to be eight, you know, it had to be eight and a half, eleven. Uh, and, and so forth, and then I started to come up with a series. Now uh, we were both, you know, we had both done stuff, you know, we're, we're both at Marvel, uh, but Marvel was not interested. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, I was also working at first, and I came by with there, you know, with with the samples of the story, and they go, yeah, let's do it. I, you know, I had taken into my head in writing it that I'm saying, I'm going to stop thinking of what would make a cool story and try to say, what do I think is actually going to happen? What do I think, you know, how, how the computer will change things, but how, you know, how all of this will, you know, will happen in 50 years. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, Mike insisted on the flying car because we have to have a flying car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course. Um, but, you know, um, and the first Saturday special, you know, um, 
you know, showed a lot of the stuff. I mean, you know, the gig economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that everybody, you know, everybody was a temp at this point. Um, you know, I, I didn't call it that, but that's what, you know, that I, I predicted it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just various things like I invented eBay, mm-hmm. online auction, you know. That's true. Yeah. Oh, and I invented spam. Oh, um, yeah. I have, I have the, you know, I have the character, you know, set up. Yeah, I didn't do it on the internet because that didn't really exist at that point. Um, but he, you know, it, so it was through the phone, but he created a bogus ad advertising an illegitimate product designed to extract your personal information. Bam. Wow. Yeah, you were way ahead. Yeah. And then, and then there's the thing about, uh, you know, New Coke. Uh, that freaked my gold out, you know. It's, it was like, you know, and, and for, you know, and, and one of the observations that I made is, look, you know, nobody thinks anything of Coca-Cola, you know, because it's omnipresent. But, you know, it's, it's, it's like um, things go out of fashion, you know, companies go out of business and so forth. And so in this world, you know, original Coca-Cola syrup is incredibly rare and considered a delicacy. <laughs> you know, oh, wow. and, and, and so, you know, it's, it's just a little bit, but, it, you know, in order to, you know, but in order to get this canister of Coke, he takes this, he takes this murder investigation. You know? mm-hmm. and, and, and shortly after the book comes out, you know, Coca-Cola announces new Coke. And what happened? Canisters of the old Coke, the syrup, become incredibly valuable. And, and, and you know, it, it, Mike just goes, you scare me. <laughs> right. You know, it, you know the, the, the course of it did, you know, didn't run smooth because, you know, Mike and I just butted heads. Mike basically thought he was, you know, he deserved, you know, all of the uh, credit for it. He, you know, he deserved most of the credit for what made it, you know, you know, made it universally paid attention to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also thought he could write. And so I said, okay, look, you know, and, and, you know, first intervened and said, listen, listen, you know, you still own half of it and, you know, you're still going to get, you know, royalties for it. But, Without Mike, there isn't a book. There's literally nobody else on the face of the earth. The way the technology was at that point, who could do this book? Mm-hmm. Right. But no, you know, that's fine. But with you know, within a couple of episodes, um, you know, Mike was talking to everybody to you know try to get them to help write the, you know the book because he had no idea what to do with it. You know, he went to, you know, he went to John Ostrander. (laughs) John just said, you know, oh, no, you, you know, um, I was going to use a bad word, but, you know, uh, you know, my, you know, my, my, my friend, and you want me to bail you out? Go yourself. Right. And, and the fact that, you know, one of the co-writers, which is, this is this is a really weird piece of trivia. One mm-hmm. of the cool writers is 
Mark Pierce. Mark Pierce is one of the developers for, you know, Macromind, Macromedia, one of the developers of Flash. Uh-huh. You know, and, and <laughs> comic and Macromedia director and all of that. Because they had their offices in that neighborhood too, and we stopped by. So, uh, so, so he got Mark Pierce, and I think this is probably the only, you know, the, the only Fortune 100 executive, uh, you know, writing credit that you're ever going to find. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. So, uh, but at any rate, so when, when he, when he finally flamed out and left, you know, there was, you know, there, there was an intermediate issue done by Steve Grant in which he, you know, like says, oh, you know, all that premise and all the stories, you know, it's all fake, you know, and <laughs> they're like, okay, you know, and, and, and then I said, I want the book back. Right. And I said, you know, that's, of course, what they would say. It's not. And, and then I said it in, in the jungle and started doing more stuff, you know, about RNA and, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, getting pregnant and things like that. So, hmm. that, that special and, and the first, you know, and the first, you know, the, the first episode, you know, um, again, I, I thought about it a lot. I worked with Mike, you know, very heavily. I, you know, I knew what we could do and what we couldn't do, but we wanted to do serious science fiction. Right, right. It, it must have been incredibly slow to produce something like that on the Mac back then. Like, it must have been almost impossible to do a monthly book. Um, yeah, uh, it was. It was the you know, but the technology was changing so fast. Right. No. Um, and my, you know, Mike was incredibly talented and could bat it out, but you know, didn't do a, you know we you know what the plan was, we did, did the special, and then it was in the back of John Sable Freelance that it was like, yes, we can do monthly, you know, he, you know, or he can do monthly six, eight, you know, six-page installments for, mm-hmm. you know, a while, and then we'll see what we'll see, but maybe that's what we can do forever, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but, you know, it's like, when we were doing this, there was no such thing as the scanner. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not until I got the book back that PageMaker came out. Huh. You know, where we could get the resolution better by taking, you know, taking each drawing and putting that, you know, and laying it out in a panel and printing it out on the laser printer. And the laser printer came in late in the, in the game. You know, graphics tablets? <clears throat> no. <laughs> you know, um, and 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 so forth. And the Macintoshes we had, you know, had did not have hard drives. When I when I talk to talk to people about it, I, I realize that I, I'm sounding like Quest for Fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, I'm old enough to use that as a reference. But it's sort of like yes, and we you know, and we bang you know, and we bang uh, rocks together and make spark. You know, it, 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 but but it really it was, you know, it was the first day of school, and um, mm-hmm. you know the cludges we used were were kind of amazing. But yes, this was 
This was once up. It was black and white. It was, color, you know, colored conventionally. And one of the things, uh, you know, Alex Wald, who is, you know, who is, has remained a dear friend, you know, first comics used to have little, you know, have their indicia, and they had, like, at the very end, little phrases. Mm-hmm. If you ever go back to look at the books, they're there, you know, for everybody. It's, it's in Badger, it's in Nexus, it's in, you know. Right. But, but in, in the Shatter Special one, he goes, no, this isn't the world's biggest connect the dots. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I, but I, but I will tell you right, right here that there is a Shatter 2.0, six issues, um, with the sixth being a double-sized issue by me and Pat Broderick, uh, that we've done. Um, well, all, all but the last, you know, I, I have yet to script the, uh, uh, last five pages because, you know, they got lost. But, um, you know, but it is, you know, it, it will be coming out sometime next year. Um, wow. And, uh, you know, no, nothing much about, um, you know, nothing about, much about computer generated. Yes, this is a computerized comic, but they're all computerized. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, but dealing, dealing with a, a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of the biological stuff that I was doing in, and, uh, in, in the, uh, series and, uh, and so forth. And it's, it's, it's really cool. Hmm. Wow. Looking forward to that. The revived first comic. Uh, yeah, because that's Shatter was I don't think anyone else anywhere in comics even touched the idea of digital art for a, a, a not till a very, very long. Like Shatter was the first and only one for a very, very long time, I, as I recall. Yeah, well, you know, um, for, first off, it, it was kind of like, well, you know, things were really changing. And I was pumping in my last, you know, couple of years in comics. I was trying to put together a um, a digital production system for mainly for indie comics because you know indie comics were in black and white, which made you know their their sales really limited. Yeah. Um, and but so much of that, you know, a lot of that was just printing, and you can't get around it. But they were paying a, a, a tremendous amount for separations, and I say you don't have to do that. Mm. You know, and especially if you're doing flat color, uh, you know, there, there's, there's ways to do that in Illustrator that doesn't involve, you know, um, files of a megabyte in size, mm-hmm. you know, which used to be scary, you know, um, yeah. I was trying, I was trying to sell it and, uh, people were listening to me. One of, one of the, one of the persons who did, um, was Dave Ulbrich. Uh, who, uh, a little bit later founded Malibu and, uh, you know, from, you know, paid attention, you know, paid attention and created a, uh, digital production environment that was so good that Marvel bought them for that production, for that, uh, production system. Oh, okay. Cause what wasn't it, uh, shoot. Kind of shortly thereafter, when you mentioned the color, wasn't didn't Comico do an experiment with some kind of weird digital coloring that get, let them do pastels? I don't, I, I don't really remember that. 
Was it Comico Dawn or was it Antarctic Press? Because the first one I remember doing computer coloring in the mid-90s that I remember noticing, hey, this is computer colored, was Antarctic Press. Um, they did Warrior Nunarella. Yeah, that's and, and they did one or two other things ahead of it, I think, six experiments. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, you know by, the, by the mid-90s, I had gone, and so I was not really paying attention to this. Mm. But I will say in the 80s, when I went to San Diego, you know, the San Diego Comic Cons were still mainly about comics, and I, I loved going there because I got to meet all, you know, I got to meet all sorts of people that I knew or didn't know, and uh, the, all the people who were on, on the West Coast and so forth. But, you know, also just sitting there and manning the Marvel table. Mm-hmm. And, and one, you know, and, you, you know, we were scheduled for that. You know, we, they didn't fly us out. You know, we, you know, we paid our own way. But they did take us out to a very nice dinner and so forth, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and we had a schedule and I found myself manning the Marvel table sitting next to John Romita Sr. Oh, wow. And I'm just, you know, and, and it's and it's kind of like, now, you know, we were both working for Marvel, but he was, you know, I mean, he was a living legend even then, you know, mm-hmm. and so forth. And I was like, can I stay, dude? You know, and, <laughs> but John turned to me and said, I've been seeing what you've been doing with, you know, with Shatter and the, you know, digital comics. That's so fascinating. Tell me more about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it was kind of like, you know, I was so delighted. And, you know, I, I knew that that John was was just a great guy in general. But the fact that he was really fascinated by our experiment that, you know, that, you know, that it, it increased my estimation. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't really think of John Romita Sr. and, you know, Digital comics in the same breath, <laughs> and kind of not now, but he really was. Um, you you can do you know you can do pastels in you know in comics. You can do all of that. It just costs money. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you know all, all you have to do is you know all you had to do was do photo separations. You know. And instead, you know, instead of, you know, exacto knife hand separation, you know, comics were still, you know, were, were still at that point absolute bargain basement production costs and uh, so forth. And, you know, no, we can't do that. You know, it was an incredibly big deal if you had a gradient on a cover. <laughs> you know, so I, you know, I'm, I'm going... Or, you know, photo separations are, you know, are a thing of the past. You know, you click one item and you have separation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and the limitation at that point was the power of the computers. You know, but now, oh, you just have a Photoshop file for the whole, you know, for the whole page. And what that's, you know, that's, that's, you know, you know, eight, 10, 12 megabytes. Big deal. You know, yep. but not, not for not for those you know, not not for not for those computers. You know. I I don't think you even have to do color separations anymore. I think most bulk printers can just print straight color now. Yeah. Well, 
I mean, you do you do separations at one at one point or another. This is, you know, you have plates. The plates are are often computer generated. Yeah. Um, and you know, you can um, there there are things which don't require plates, like inkjet printing, and that's good for one thing. But you know, you 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 want to print a hundred thousand. You're going. Yeah. Um, and but it's it, you know it's disappeared from people's consciousness because it's no longer a big deal. I'm a good fan with all of this talk. So. <laughs> I bet. Um, so what eventually led to you leaving comics then? Well, um, it was you know it was complicated. Uh, a whole lot you know I mean some of it was personal stuff about well you know basically an engagement falling apart. But it was also that comics, it's, you know, I, I, I had been fighting for long enough that comics had, had, had stopped being fun. Mm. And, uh, you know, and it was like, I was, at that point, I was, I was in Chicago, and first, you know, first comics had shut down. So, and, and so it's now comics. So, you know, the whole comic book industry in Chicago was defunct. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and, and so, but my, my relationship with Marvel was, uh, you know, I, I put it this way. Um, you know, there was all this infighting going on up at Marvel. You know, so and so is on the in, so and so is the on the outs, and uh, I had no idea what was going on. You know what what all that what all that stuff was, but I was still subject to it. <laughs> you know, and it, it's you know, and, and, and it's like all of a sudden you you go well, you know, it's a liability to be the, you know to, to to be this person's friend. You know, and you go what the fuck, you know. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, that that would that would definitely do it. That would definitely take all the fun out of it. Yeah, and uh, you know, a lot, you know, and and that was Marvel. Now, my you know my solution, you know, my partial solution was let's work at DC, and I mm-hmm. was you know already interested in doing stuff at DC, and and had done a couple of books, you know, Tailgunner Joe, which mm-hmm. you know. Which you know, we're, you know, it, I, I think it remains the only comic that DC ever put out with a mature audience's uh, label on it, purely for the weirdness of the concept. Yes, yeah, you know? that's definitely true. And it was supposed to be twelve issues, you know, but um, they stopped at six. Not so much that you know nobody nobody ever came to me and saying we're stopping at issue six. It's just sort of like what what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, Gamma Rodders died because the the TSR DC uh, you know relationship came to an end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Barbara, you know, Barbara Kiesel was my editor. You know, but she she moved away from that, and Elliot Magan became my editor. You know, last issues of Tailgunner Joe and last issues of Camera Um mm-hmm. And I was working 
you know, and, and, you know, we were working up new, new ideas. And one of the ideas I had was for, for, for a street type character. And, you know, the name, name of the thing was, was going to be Jackknife. And although there's a lot more than that, you know, I, I said, well, you know, the, 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 the hook for this is the first all of superhero. <laughs> okay. Wow. I'm not. I'm not going to give you the whole the whole deal. But right. And, it, and you know, Elliot and I. You know, he he loved the idea, and and we were. You know, we went out to lunch. You know, and uh, discussed who. You know, who we could get as an artist. Uh, he offered me this guy Tim Sale, and I go. I I don't like his faces. You know, but that was me coming off of working with Brent Anderson. You know, hmm. uh, and. You know, but the person that we ended up agreeing on was uh, Kevin Van Hook, mm-hmm. um, who you know is still friends. You know, is still friends with me. You know, he's a, you know, you know now now making making films and you know bloodshot film, etc. All of that. But um, and then Elliot vanished. I mean, really vanished. Mm-hmm. He knew where he was. He showed up, you know, six months later on the West Coast and wouldn't explain, you know, what was going on. I have never really asked him. But, you know, he was just gone. And I said, okay, well, who's taking over his books? And nobody knew. Huh. And I went, you know, it's like, what about this project? And, you know, and I couldn't get, you know, no, you know, nobody had, 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 had any idea. I talked to Denny O'Neill. I talked to Bob Greenberger. You know, it, it, you know, all, you know the, the people, you know, my, my friends over there. And it's just like, and that was the weird part about DC. It, you know, it was sort of like things could just vanish. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and kind of at that point, I went, oh, screw this. You know? <laughs> They're, they're, you know, they're, you know, they're, 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 you know, they're not the mean girls that, you know, that Marvel tends to be, but, you know, this is just, you know, and I was fascinated by computer production and, uh, soon found that I could make a lot of money, uh, doing, uh, you know, doing digital production, desktop publishing when desktop publishing was a thing. Right. Um, and ended up working for a, uh, you know, uh, being one of the senior, lay, you know, the senior layout people for uh, a series of text for a textbook uh, producer. Ooh, and, uh, okay. And uh, you know, really pretty happy about it. And uh, you know, and you know, and then ended up for 20, nearly twenty years doing that and doing everything from you know web design to three D modeling to you know to you know interactive. Stuff and uh, you know, as long as or the content, it was it was really fun and exciting. Mm-hmm. So I, I I left you know because you know it was you know there was just too much junk going on. Right, um, right. And you know, and I really did I really didn't want to you know fight to stay in. Right. Yeah. You know. Especially by remote control. You know. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so you definitely made the right choice. Yeah. So, and and you know, it, it's 
So I missed out on the boom of the 90s, you know, but I also missed out on the bust afterwards, you know. So at any, so at any rate, that, that, that's more or less why. I won't tell you all of it. Right. But that, that, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. But that's, you know, that's, those are some pretty good reasons to go. Okay. So as a writer then, you well, you're working in the print textbook company, but what have you been doing since then? One of the, you know one of the things I you know one of the things I did was um, was say after a, after a few years of doing uh, production um, I just gotten off a really big project and mm-hmm. I had a bunch of money in the bank and I said I'm going to write that novel you know that science fiction novel wanted to do and I, I was going no oh, you know I could I you know I could write a good solid space opera pot boiler, you know, or, you know, you know, science fiction adventure story in about, you know, four or five months, and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and, and get it published. And maybe I could just do it like, you know, some of the other people who were, you know, who were churning out two books a year. And uh, I could live pretty well that way. Mm-hmm. Well, that the novel went, you know, did not take, Three, four, or five months. It took better, you know, more more than a year to do, and it turned into something else. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, when I when I was done, one of the things that I was that, that I was promised fell through. Um, one of you know, one of the fan letters I had gotten on Shatter Shatter Special Number One was from Virginia Kid. Mm-hmm. Now Virginia Kid. Was Samuel Delaney's literary agent was was Gene Wolfe's literary agent, um, mm-hmm. Alderman's literary. Yeah, I mean she was, per, you know, perhaps the most influential, uh, you know, science fiction agent, you know, in existence at that point. She was she was the top of the heap. And so I said, okay, and she wrote me saying, this is a wonderful story. This is really good. And I, I freaked out when I got the, the <laughs> that, you know, uh, I should write some science fiction to show to her. And I go, you're writing a book a week. When are you, when are you going to have time for that? So, uh, but at that point, I had a book and I said, I have a book. Do you remember me? And she was, of course, would you, you know, would you read this? And uh, she said, uh, absolutely. And I sent it to her. And she said, you know, I, he came back a while later and said, "This is this is wonderful. This is the best novel I've read in 27 years of agenting." <laughs> wow! And um, you know, and I said, "Since you're Gene Wolfe's literary agent, I think you're wrong." You know, but <laughs> and and she couldn't sell it. Oh, wow! You know. And, uh, you know, it, it, you know, and they were all, you know, and I, I, I got the rejection letters, but, you know, and one of, one of the eye-blows of that was that because Virginia Kidd was, you know, was a decades-long friend of Julie Schwartz, Julie became one of my, you know, one of my real friends. I was still going to conventions, you know, so, um, mm. and, and, and so forth. But she tried to sell it to Alfred Knopf, 
you know, which is how much he thought of it. But they go, we do not do science fiction. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so forth. Um, but she tried, you know, she, she kept trying. Uh, but no, people were going back and saying, well, this is really impressive, but it's really strange. So, you know, um, so it never, you know, it never got sold. And so I was naturally, you know, kind of devastated over that. But, you know, and, and so, but, you know, all of that digital production work, that really good paying digital production work beckoned, and I pretty well did that. It still exists, and, you know, we'll, we'll, one, day, we'll, we'll one day show up. But, um, so I ended up doing that, and, you know, and, and was, was, was writing a little bit of this and a little bit of that just because I just couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, when the economy, you know, when, when, you know, 2008 showed up and, and the economy started going, going into shit, and so did my, uh, so, so did, you know, digital production, um, I got approached by, uh, by, you know, Connor Cochran, who was a friend, so, you know, Connor, known as Fref, back in the day, and uh, they said, and he said, well, you know, we're going to make uh, do a graphic novel of the last unicorn. Do you want to write it? You know, and I go, yeah. <laughs> and you know, it 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 was it, it you know, it, last unicorn was one of my favorite fantasy novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, we three copies out of it, and and so forth, and and, and loved the animated film. You know, which. Uh, you know, the animation wasn't great, but uh, Eagle had written the screenplay himself. And it's sort of like, yes, and, you know, so I ha- I did have to turn a 100-page novel into 89 pages of, uh, of comics. Mm-hmm. Not easy, you know. And I was doing it, and every page, you know, was going by Peter Beagle. Mm-hmm. No pressure there. No, not at all. <laughs> Yeah, not at all. And I, I go, come on, say something wrong about me. You say something, you know, <laughs> oh, looks wonderful. Being polite, you know. Uh, anyway, so, uh, and we did that, and, uh, you know, it got on the New York Times bestseller list for graphic books. And, nice. Uh, and uh, it did well, but, you know, I was pushing for a sequel to it, you know. Well, not a sequel to The Last Unicorn, but I said, look, uh, Renee and you know Renee and Ray, who had done the artwork, and you know it, it's a spectacular book. I say, look, you know, um, and this is where I said, what you know, why don't we adapt something like Lord Dunsany's The King of Elfland's Daughter? Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I you know, I know how to do it. I you know, and and so forth, and have me and. And you can go and say, now, you know, from, you know, the, the same team that brought you the New York Times best-selling last unicorn here, the King of Elfland's daughter, and, you know, and on the, on, on the title alone, you should be able to sell it. Well, nobody listened to me. I don't know. Huh. But, uh, and, uh, you know, then other, you know, other personal stuff intervened, 
helping, you know, take care of my mom. Hmm. So forth. Um, but, you know, and, and, but gradually we also, you know, First Comics was starting up and, uh, Alex Wall said, you know, you want to do, uh, you know, you want to do a graphic novel of Black Flame? And I said, yes, absolutely. And, uh, but Tom Sutton had passed away. Um, and I, you know, and we got, how could we, yeah, and, uh, I said, well, you know, um, my first thing was, you know, I, th- I think Kelly Jones could do it, but I don't know how to get in touch with him. Because at that point, Kelly had no, you know, no, no internet presence whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so, so it's sort of like, uh, you know, I think he'd be up for it, but, uh, you know, and, and I, I, I tried talking to, uh, Doug Bench, you know, um, you know, it's like, no, I tried talking to my parent. Nobody, nobody had any contact information for him. And then, um, and, and, and so I, I said, Alex, you know who I'd really love to do, but I'm kind of scared to work with? Because who's that? Alex Nino. Mm. And, you know, and it's like, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> you know, in, in the 70s and 80s, he was doing all this unbelievable, wild, you know, wild stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like there's this graphic, you know, graphic novel from DC called Space Clusters, which, you know, if you've ever tried to read it, it's like, it's gorgeous page after page of art, but you, you know, what's going on is kind of difficult to tell. And I know <laughs> the writer, Arthur Byron Cover, what he was just, uh, he was not really, you know, experienced comic book writer, but, you know, and, and it's like, my God, does it look good. And he did an adaptation of, uh, Harlan Ellison's, uh, Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man. Or, ah, okay. It, where he dis, you know, he, he dispensed with things like panels. You know? <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it, it, you should, you know, it, you know, go and try to find the the artwork. It's just unbelievable. So, you know, so I said, I know, but you know, you know, can you know, can can I not get drowned by you know by Alex's work? I just love to do it, and. You know, and Alex went, well, he has a web page. So, you know, within, within, uh, within a couple of hours, Alex had agreed to do it. Oh, wow. And then what happened was Connor, who had become my agent, said, oh, shit. And, you know, I'm sorry. It's okay. You know, <laughs> and, and he just went, went to the DC Comics accounting department. And asked for his ad, asked for Kelly Jones' address. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, and of course they gave it to him. <laughs> and he, you know, still got checks, you know. Um, and, uh, and, and Kelly went, Oh my God. Oh, I really want to work with this, you know, and so forth. And I'm going, now what do I do? <laughs> oh, I've already, I, I've got two. You know, and, and how could I say no to either of these people? But then I said, well, I have two universes. I have the Nightmare Universe and I have the Miracle Universe. 
and I'll give them a universe of peace. Huh. You know? mm-hmm. So, uh, but you know, and that it took a long time to get you know to get out, and unfortunately, you know, like, and I think it's because you know Ken Levin, publisher of first eight hated. Well, still hates Diamond Distributor, mm. and, and did not go through them, so nobody tended to know it was out. But um, you know, this this amazing book that never really got reviewed, and I'm going, you know, it's like I can I can deal with you, you know, saying, you know, at this point, didn't you used to be Peter Gillis, you know, <laughs> or or something like that, you know, you haven't done anything in so long, but. You know, there's Alex Dino and there's Kelly Jones, who is a current god of comics. And, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like, and, and when I, you know, it, and when I mentioned it on Facebook, they go, wow, what? <laughs> and they go, you know, and, 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 you know, people in the industry going, has First Comics revived? And mm-hmm. people in the industry don't know that you were, uh, have revived your company. I think there's a problem. So, but so gradually, you know, but you know, gradually, um, you know, I I I increased my my visibility, um, and I you know I I did a, you know I, I wrote a couple of screenplays, etc. And you know, and sort you know and uh, which they still what they get produced. I don't know. Um, I hope so. You know, right. One of the things I decided to do just to have some stuff out there that was new was to just uh, publish a serial online one mm-hmm. episode a week and, uh, you know, you know, get myself a, you know, a, a WordPress website and just mm-hmm. put it up. People know that here it is and it's free and you know you want it and you and you like it send you know send me you know you know drop me money um mm-hmm. you know it's called the romance of the rose okay. and you know and you know just you know just me prose you know and uh because i was i was tired of doing proposals and that that sort of thing for for you know for stuff even if i got paid that were, you know, that, you know, were, were not in evidence out there. And, uh, of course, what happened was my agent says, are you crazy? You know, what, what are you doing? He goes, no, you, you can put it on our website, you know, on the Conland Press website. And we have, you know, and, and we, we have subscription lists and, uh, and so forth. And, uh, you know, and, and, and we, you know, we, we can sell subscriptions to it and so forth. And you can get an art, you know, you can get an artist to do illustrations for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to do a comic, but, you know, just, and, you know, and I'm going, yeah. Okay. I want to work with Mark Badger. Okay. And, <laughs> you know, and, and it was sort of like, and, and, and Connor went, Really? <laughs> like, yes, really. Oh, you know, and he was obviously thinking of somebody, you know, some of my, you know, more conventional comics friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ron Friends, or Brent 
you're the boss. And, uh, you know, so I started putting it out. Um, episode a week. Beautiful, you know, beautiful full-color illustrations by Mark, because he's not bound by print or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we were we, we were just going away one, one episode a week, but long about issue, you know, about episode 30, um, Connor got it, you know, Connor got into, like, serious legal and financial trouble, as in lawsuits. Mm-hmm. That, that he is, you know, that that not the guilty party anyway. Mm, um, right, right. There's 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 stuff out there about it, but you know, I, I don't want to bring up the best. Most of the stuff that is out there is not an accurate representation of what's go- what what went on. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, you know, um, it's sort of like all of a sudden, yeah, was well, answering his his emails. <laughs> So, and I, you know, I, I kept on working, you know, but it is sort of like, and then he would go, I'm sorry, I just got ahead of me and let's, let's publish, you know, two episodes, you know, two episodes this week and let's, you know, get on back on schedule. And we never did, Hmm. uh, you know, it, 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 it went down. So, um. Now, do you still own the copyright for that? Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I own, I own everything on it, you know. Um, the th- and the thing was, I'm going. This is supposed to be foolproof. Oh, mm. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, this is just supposed to be me, no right? Public, no licensor, no nothing, and but it would be out there, right? And, it, you know, and, and uh, now. Admittedly, you know, working with Mark was was a joy, but you know, it, it's like this was supposed to just work, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you know, I, I continued is going to be you know fifty, you know, uh, fifty episodes plus an epilogue, and I wrote them all. Right. Uh, Mark stopped drawing when they stopped going up because seriously, you know. Mm-hmm. Of course. But. You know, so and and that that you know that was a joy to do, and I got a lot better as a writer doing it. And I you know just you know this this prose all by yourself is a lot of fun, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, I mean, you know, Connor yelled at me a couple of times saying, "Describe the stuff." But <laughs> are you? You know, and things like that. But. Um, and I, I, I shook myself free of some of the, uh, some of those problems. Um, but that ended up as, you know, another one of these things that, you know, like everything looks great. It's not coming out. But, um, I will tell you that thanks, thanks to first publications, Mark has gotten money and we are, you know, you know, we are getting this out early next year, probably. Okay. Uh, excellent. And, uh, you know, and but the, the second thing that I did mm-hmm. you know, was, you know, during COVID, when the lockdown happened, you know, you know, just in order to like keep myself sane, I started to do this this serial, Humans, one episode a day. Oh, 
Okay. Please give us the link and we'll put it in the show notes so people can go check it out. Although, what's the name of your website? The, the, the name of the website is counterfactual.news. Counterfactual.news. Nice title. <laughs> well, uh, the reason I, I own that site was that for, you know, for the Romance of the Rose, my hero worked for counterfactualnews.com. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, you know, and, you know, so uh, we couldn't get counterfactualnews.com, but we got counterfactual.news. That's so pretty good. <laughs> that was there, that was sitting there, and, but when I was, you know, when I was, you know, starting up humans, one of my friends says, you still have that, don't you? And I go, sure, okay. And, you know, all, all, you know, all the episodes are there. I, you know, and, and yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's a lot of fun. It gets pretty complex after a while. Mm -hmm. but, you know, it's based, you know, it's basically a multi-dimensional adventure story. Okay. Hmm. Young her father, um, who are, are trying to discover whether or not they're actually tools. <laughs> okay. Because because they meet they meet this giant capybara from another universe, and he says, "Well, you know, in our universe, you guys are uh, are are engaging engaging cartoon characters." So anyway, and, and, uh, <laughs> I, 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 that's all. Okay, okay. I think people should definitely go check it out. Um, actually, we we should probably start wrapping this up. So. So, Don, do you have any other questions for uh, Peter? Uh, I got kind of two. Uh, one that I've always wondered is, where did Blaze Barlow come from? Um, Blaze, Bar Blaze Barlow came from uh, a long car trip. Okay. <laughs> um, you, you know, it, it was, you know, I, I was, I was working for, working for first in Marvel, and I, I was driving from Chicago to New York, you know, just thinking, you know, just, you know, letting things flow and things. And th that name came through, you know, came through all of a sudden. And I'm going, yeah, I want to do that. Now, what's it about? You know, and, <laughs> um, yeah, that, they, you know, that's basically where it came from. It has a lot of themes that, uh, that, um, you know, that I tended to be, interested in at that point 
And it was something that, well, you know, I wanted to do with with Kelly, Kelly Jones. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was kind of weird because, you know, Kelly is not really known as a humor artist. Yeah. You know? uh, and so, you know, in order to do that, I, I, I really started sort of, you know, goofing it up. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, getting him to, you know, getting him to loosen up and getting just a little bit less, you know, conventional. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. that's not for doing by to Kelly. And the first episode, you know, the first episode came out and, uh, and then Marvel lowered the boom saying, you are not going to do any more of this. How come? All right. You know, you know, and they handed it to Barry Crane, Chicago friend at first. And Barry is a humor artist. Mm -hmm. And so it, you know, it just went completely off the rails, you know, because I was doing you know, far goofier stuff that I usually do in order to get Kelly to work. And now I was working with a guy who does funny stuff anyway. Mm -hmm. going, oh, this is nuts. So, <laughs> and, you know, I, you know we, we only did, you know, we, we only did, you know, six issues was, was you know, we, I wanted to do more. Hadn't done her origin. Yes, you heard that, that, uh, that, Wait, that pronoun? Blaze is a girl? One of them is. Oh, okay, good point. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, you know, and, uh, you know, one of, one of the people who was absolutely ecstatic over it was Kim Yale. Mm -hmm. he's, he's, you know, John Ostrander's first wife. And, mm -hmm. uh, in fact, went so far as to, like, go to Halloween parties dressed as Blaze. <laughs> wow. So, at any rate, um, yeah, it 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 came, you know it it came from um, came from a period where you know I, I just sort of said I I want to push it as far as I can go. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and yeah, there you know, um, you know, I mean, among among other things, you know, the the uh, you know the idea of the angel falling from heaven. Mm -hmm. A corporate, a, a, you know, a corporeal body to do that, but he lands in a bakery. So <laughs> uh, and you know, and, you know, and it's it, it's sort of you know, it's sort of like, and 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 then well, you know, and and of course the reason why, uh, you know, the reason why he's being chased by the apocalypse squad. Mm -hmm. Angels with you know with, with bandoliers and big guns, you know, uh, was because he has stolen um, the dice of God, you know, the dice that uh, he doesn't play with the universe, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and God won. And so the last episode is called "Pair O Dice Regained." So, <laughs> Anyway, yeah, this is it, you know, and, and uh, you know, God, I love that, you know, and I, I did write, uh, you know, Alex loved, Alex Wall loved it too, he's, you know, um, and so he had me write up a proposal for reviving Blazewell, and I don't know if that's ever going to happen. <laughs> oh, I, 
Oh, I, I, I definitely think it should. I, I actually, because the, the line I started the episode with and the reason God wanted the dice back so bad were two things that from the point that story came out, those became kind of like running gags with me and all my friends. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, and then, of course, I have, I, you know, I have the, the guy in uh, Buckskins and uh, Dreadlocks, uh, Natty Bumpo Dread. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I think the first use of the phrase apocalypso now. <laughs> right. You, you know, I, and it, it's become kind of popular, but I think I was the first, you know. I do, I do believe you. The only one I think might be able to contend that is there's a Judge Dredd story. Yeah. I, th- I think it's in, I, I I think it was in Judge Dredd, but it was uh, later. Yeah, I do. I do think that was that was that would have been like a year after First Adventures came out, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and it, no, 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 you know, I just had there, there, you know, there's all these tremendously bad ideas that I got. From, <laughs> I, I mean, basically, there's one big villain that. Um, you know, who is, who is this, you know, big evil blonde guy whose name is Wrong Hands. Yep. Anyway, so, but yeah, that, that, it's, it's um, you know, it's a, it's a favorite of mine. And, um, and yeah, you know, Anybody, anybody says, you know, hey, you know, I'd like to publish Blaze Marlowe, you know, and, and, and I, I can give you 35 cents a page. I think about it. <laughs> Somebody has to. I, 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 again, that was, uh, I got such a kick out of that back in the day, and I still do, because it is such a weird, weird story. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, 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 it 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 does you know the 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 line from Blaze Barlow to the uh, you know to my pulverizer stories with Hillary Barda in what the there is a direct connection so <laughs> you know, okay and I I will tell you know I mean I will tell you this I was I was ready you know just you know ready to leave comics ready to you know to close that chapter of my life and. You know, and uh, and Hillary Barter calls me up and says, ah, you you want to do you you, you want to help me uh, parody the Punisher?" Mm-hmm. So, who <laughs> and who can resist that, right? <laughs> and one 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 last parenthesis on that is. Um, mm-hmm. About four years ago, um, there's one year um, where Imaginarium people who put on conventions decided to try me out. You know, send me to four conventions. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much a success. Um, you know, um, they didn't do. You know, they didn't tend to do anybody every year who wasn't like an ultra superstar. But um, and then of course COVID came along and stopped everything. But mm-hmm. We did, you know, we did a, you know, they, we 
panel at like each of them. We started out, and I forget, Indianapolis, I think. And Carl Potts and I were both there. And um, I forget who else. But they put us on a Comics in the 80s panel, which got phenomenally well attended. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we ended up, uh, you know, I ended up being on a Comics in the, uh, you know, in the 80s panel at each of the conventions. And one of them turned out to be just me and Jerry Conway. Huh. And, you know, and Jerry and I kind of knew each other, but really had not said more than five words to each other. But we were both in comics in the 80s. You know, mm-hmm. and I was this peripheral guy, and he was the ex-editor-in-chief of Marvel, and, you know. And, and I, you know, and, and um, you know, and, you know, what what I said to him is, is, is like, should we, you know, like, introduce you know, ourselves and say, hi, I created the Punisher, and I said, I, hi, I parodied him, you know. <laughs> but we, we, we actually, you know, we, we, it actually turned out to be a really successful panel. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like, yeah, uh, parody the Punisher, I'll do that any day. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Okay, Don, one last question. Because the, 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 the one, and this kind of probably just a quickie one, is because you didn't mention him and every other person who ever worked in the comic industry in any capacity we talked to mentions him, have you ever met Phil Fo- uh, Folio? Yep. Oh. You know, I was responsible for Phil's, you know, look, we were, you know, we were friends. We li- were living in Chicago, etc. Um... And I'm responsible for probably Phil's only Marvel art, you know, art job. Huh. Which one was that? It was a Doctor Strange parody in What the? Oh, okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, you know, Doctor Strange finally gets sick of it, you know, um, goes into Sinister for a vacation, mm-hmm. leaving his copyright behind. <laughs> um, and, and, and then get bored by Zatanna Nana into the DC universe, you know, where he, where he meets characters like Dead Man. <laughs> I got these tapes of Garcia and Weir, just Janet, you know, and the Stranger, um, and so forth, and and and. And their most powerful ca- character, the spatula. Uh, so, no, we, you know, no, we we worked together, um, and uh, you know, we you know, we lived in the same city. We went to each, you know, we went to each other's parties and stuff like that. And yes, we we worked together on, uh, uh, you know, at Marvel, and uh, and I think it was due to the combination of, uh, I I think it was also due to Carl Potts. You know, mm-hmm. not carry, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, I think that was, I'm not sure, but I think that was the only time Phil ever worked for one. So, yeah, because I, I can't remember. I know he did a few things for DC, but that's, I, I don't. Yeah. Angel in the Eight. Yeah. Yes. And Stanley and his monster. Right, right. And, uh, and I think wrote Plastic Man that Hillary drew. So, Hillary Varda. Yeah, I think. Man, that gets so, so yes. That guy gets around so much. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah, right. But, uh, you know, I mean, you know, 
Um, the reason Don is asking is because it seems like uh, Phil Folio is the uh, Kevin Bacon of comics. Everybody is, is a couple steps away or one step away anyway from Phil Folio. Yeah, could be. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, um, well, you know, I mean, you know, Phil really had, um, you know, feet in both worlds, you know, mainly, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Hugo Award for Best Fan Artist, I believe, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or, you know, or, or first funny fan artist, I don't know, but, um, but at any rate, very, you know, very much a science fiction convention type of guy. But also did, you know, um, and, uh, you know, um, it's kind of like, you know, um, he did, uh, I'm doing, you know, so this is bad. But, um, he worked with, um, uh, the people who did Starblaze editions. Oh, yeah. You know, and, um, and the covers for Robert Asper and the Smith Adventures, which turned mm-hmm. into Adventures Comics, which built through. Yeah. And, and so, you know, pretty, uh, pretty prolific and, uh, <laughs> he, he's an interesting, he's an interesting fellow. Okay. On that note, I think we're going to finish up for tonight. So thank you so much, Peter, for coming on. We yeah. really, really appreciate it. It's been fascinating listening to you and hearing about your experiences and uh, your time in the comics industry and, and what you've got going on right now. I wish you the best of luck in the uh, future with uh, your hopefully getting back into comics and publishing in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's kind of like I, you know, I'm I'm back in comics, but I'd like to get more than the, like the tips of the fingers in my left hand. <laughs> well, hopefully, this podcast will help a few more people be aware of you, and you never know where things could lead. Right. Um, and thank you, audience, for listening. Please tune in next month when we'll be interviewing another guest who's almost as interesting as Peter. Almost. Um, take care and if you have any questions or comments please drop by obeythedna.com to leave show no- to leave questions or whatever in our show notes so thanks again Peter for coming on thank you everyone mm-hmm. for listening and good night all good night it's fun <laughs>